Throughout the federal election, our polls consistently found that healthcare was a top issue for many Canadians. Canadians of all ages are concerned about the capacity of the health system, the long-term impacts of the pandemic, and health worker shortages in many parts of the system. As the new federal cabinet is set to be sworn in later this month and a new parliament is set to begin, I wonder, will healthcare be a priority for this new parliament and government? Welcome back to Season 4 of In Focus with David Coletto. I'm David Coletto. On this episode of In Focus, I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Smart, the president of the Canadian Medical Association and a pediatrician in Whitehorse, Yukon. Dr. Smart's work has centered on developing collaborative partnerships with community and government services to serve marginalized children using a model of social pediatrics. She works primarily with children who have experienced trauma and adverse childhood events and is passionate about improving services for marginalized children. Dr. Smart assumed her role as president of the CMA earlier this year, and we sat down to chat about the impact of the pandemic on Canada's healthcare system, the role the federal government can play in improving healthcare across the country, and why politics often gets in the way of meaningful change in the system. I hope you found our conversation useful and enjoyable. Well, Dr. Smart, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It's a pleasure to meet you. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks, David. I appreciate you having me on your show. I'm uh, I'm just curious before we get into the the, the bulk of the content. Um, this was your first, I guess. Not every CMA president gets to experience a federal election, but uh, your your term started just I think before or just after the election started. How was the the campaign from a an advocacy perspective and 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 being in this role? Well, as you said, the the campaign started really just soon after I became the president, so launched straight into that, which was exciting. Um, you know, it was really interesting. I had the chance to speak with several candidates from all the parties, which I enjoyed. Um, and it was great to see, I think, more conversations about health happening across the parties, which is so important. But that being said, you know, I think also a bit disappointing in that we continue to see lots of generalisms when it comes to health and not a lot of actual plans or dedicated solutions. So that worried me. Yeah, we're going to get into that in our in our conversation. But before I do, I mean, this election happened, uh, you know, still in the midst of a, a global pandemic. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about the economic and social impacts of, of this pandemic. But first and foremost, it, it's a health crisis. I, I, I'm wondering from your vantage point and, and you know, being the head of the CMA and, and connecting with physicians and other health professionals across the country, can you give me a sense what, you know, the last 18 months has been like for both our system and the individuals working in it? I think it's been really exhausting for both, you know, let's start maybe with the individuals within the system. Um, we held an emergency summit last week together with the Canadian Nurses Association to really try to hear from health professionals across the country, 
how they're feeling, what they're seeing and what their concerns are moving forward. And, and we had over 35 different organizations there. And what really struck me about that meeting was that everybody, you know, everyone in health right now really had the same things to say. And that was that people were feeling exhausted and also hopeless because they just were not seeing the leadership from government that they felt was going to get them or our system through this crisis. And I think that's been one of the real challenges. You know, of course, it's a pandemic. There's a lot of very sick people. There's a huge increased strain on our system. And I don't think anyone working in healthcare wouldn't have expected that that was going to be hard. But I think what's tough is when you pair that with the sort of burnout and moral injury that comes from some of our leaders not really acknowledging what's going on, not putting the things in place that we know work at this stage, particularly the pandemic, and, and healthcare workers really largely feeling ignored and unheard by government. So, so that theme, I think, has been more present over the last few months, and that's been really challenging. And I worry about how that's going to impact our health workforce moving forward as, as people have to heal from that and then still face this incredible backlog mm -hmm. of patients that still need care. From the system's perspective, I, I think it's really just showing the absolute cracks in the foundation of our healthcare system. And this, again, was no surprise to anyone who's been in the system. Maybe it was more of a surprise uh, to other Canadians who don't see the challenges of the healthcare system daily as those of us who are within it do. Um, but, you know, we've obviously the whole system's been very overloaded. It's been very challenging to increase acute care services to match the demand while not really negatively impacting other people that still require acute care services. And it's a bit shocking, I think, to be in this fourth wave and see some provinces essentially have their acute care system shut down by this when we sort of know what we should be doing at this point to avoid that. So I think it's been a huge strain on the system. We've seen a huge attrition, particularly of nurses. Uh, this is on the background of a global nursing shortage. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how we come out of this is going to be, I think, a big challenge over the next few years. I mean, you mentioned the backlogs. I think, you know, throughout this pandemic, for those that have been very fortunate not to have gotten ill from, from COVID and not had, have had to go into the system because of that illness, um, are still, you know, deeply worried that if they were to get sick um, or their loved ones who, you know, need frequent diagnostic or treatments that the, you know, the system just may not be there um, for them. I think, you know, as a pollster, people always ask me, like, what do people worry about the most when it comes to healthcare? It's, it's just that the system's not going to be there when they need it. And this backlog, which we've, I've, you know, we've had conversations about in the public space, and we know that, you know, it might take years before, you get to a, a more normal and I use normal with quotations because I don't think the system before the pandemic was, was as normal as we'd like it to be, but normal will be a, a, a far ways off. Um, you talked about health, human resources, you know, the, the, the nurses shortage as an example. You also mentioned just the sheer exhaustion that, that most health professionals are feeling. What <laughs> you're, you're a physician, what, what's the diagnosis for the system once we get out of, you know, I know this pandemic may go on for a while or, or we'll have COVID around in our lives for a while, but like once we, we really know we're past the worst of this, what, what do you, what do you think? And what are, what are, you know, folks at the CMA thinking it's going to take for us to get the system back on its feet again? Well, you know, I, I think when you think about diagnosis, I'd really say code blue, you know, mm. we we've had a system that's been falling apart for years because of austerity and health. You know, we know Canada's healthcare system, 
ranks very low among high income countries. In fact, you know, just recently it was shown to be second last just ahead of the United States. Um, we do not have the resources in our healthcare system that other high income countries have. And, and that includes not enough doctors, not enough nurses, not enough acute care beds, not enough primary care. So we are playing catch up all the time. And as we emerge from this pandemic, we are going to be faced with having to play catch up that we're always in because we have some of the longest wait lists in the world for various procedures on top of now adding to that those same folks that should have already had the procedures waiting yet again. Um, so we are going to need some serious investment in our healthcare system to really look at what resources it's going to take to get it to a place that it can service Canadians and leadership to really look at, you know, what parts of our system are working, what parts aren't, and what are some actual plans to get us where we need to be. And I think that's the challenge when you hear people just broadly talking about healthcare. Um, you know, people talked about the healthcare system for years. We have many reports. They're all sort of sitting on shelves, mm -hmm. collecting dust, but where's the action? Where's the resources that pair with that so that we can actually see the change that we need to get our system where it needs to be. And it's not that there isn't demand for this, um, you know, during the campaign and even before, uh, the polling we did and other firms did consistently shows healthcare as a top issue for a large number of people. And, and, you know, it's, it's consistent pretty much across the country, some parts of the country, more, more, more concerned about the system, I think as a reflection of, of some of the, the weaker aspects of, of, of different systems, but whether you're young or old, whether you, um, you know, uh, have different political backgrounds, whether you're a conservative, a liberal, new Democrat, Healthcare's top of mind. Um, and yet, I mean, we had, as, uh, to, to what you said earlier in our conversation, I think there was some focus on healthcare, maybe more um, than in the last federal election in 2019, but not, this is my opinion, not nearly enough given that we were in a, a health crisis. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, you, you, you appreciated some of the conversations that were had about healthcare. Do you think, why don't you think then there wasn't um, more focus put on health as an issue during the campaign. I think it only came up a few times in the leaders' debates, and you know you rarely you rarely heard about it, um, despite you know th the crisis the system's really under right now. Absolutely, you know I think we heard all the parties making various promises within health, but again the promises are very broad and very vague. And that's the concern is, you know, okay, we're going to get more family doctors. Okay, great. Yes, we all agree that needs to happen. But how are we going to do that? Where are we going to find these people? How are we going to get them where they need to be? How are we going to retain them there? Right? We need, these are complex problems, and they need detailed solutions and plans. And, and that's really, I think, what we're not hearing. You know, we know we need more investment in the system. We know that the federal health transfer has sort of plateaued and is set to decline. Uh, over the next few years, and it's not meeting the needs of provinces to deliver healthcare. Well, again, what's the plan there to actually increase that funding? What does that look like? And how do we make sure that it goes to the places in the system that need it? And th this is sort of the level of, of detail that we're not hearing. I think we we struggle in Canada really for two key reasons in terms of moving forward with healthcare. 
One is because I think our healthcare system is a source of national pride. It's almost like, you know, the sacred cow that everyone's afraid to talk about in detail in some ways, because I think, you know, people go down that rabbit hole of, of talking about revamping our system has to mean public private. And, and that prevents people, I think, sometimes from really looking at the system and analyzing it and, and coming forward with new ideas to make it better. We can do that within a publicly funded system. There's many examples around the world of systems that work better than ours. So let's mm -hmm. look to those examples and do better and talk about it rather than pretending it's great when I think it's pretty clear that it isn't. And then I think the second issue is because of the federal provincial jurisdictional issues, it's very easy for the issue to be bumped back and forth. You know, the federal government can come, can state, well, it's the province's job to deliver healthcare. So we don't really have a role there in, in terms of how that happens. Um, and then the provinces can very much be back to the federal government. Well, you're not giving us enough money to deliver the healthcare. So we're doing the best we can. And you end up almost with this stalemate. And I would argue a bit of a leadership vacuum. So I think when you combine those two things, what you end up with is people going, yeah, healthcare is important. And I absolutely agree with you. You know, the polling uh, that we did with your organization through the election confirmed what we knew. Nine out of 10 Canadians feel it's their top issue. Um, but we end up with sort of these generalized conversations and no actual plan or leadership. And that's, I think, why we are where we are. We're just not moving forward with actual change. Yeah, you, you mentioned the jurisdictional fights. You know, I always... I always think about why 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 aren't the federal parties engaging more on this? And I think one of them one of the reasons is it's purely political is that they're just afraid of of stepping into provincial jurisdiction, particularly as it relates to Quebec. You know, you had Quebec Premier Francois Legault calling you know the Liberal and NDP plans as too centralist and interventionist, and all but endorsing you know a conservative minority government. But it but it really seemed to me that he wasn't ahead of you know, his, his, his residents, the population of Quebec, he was actually behind them because they, they didn't seem to listen to him. And, and I think that's because when we ask Quebecers, how do you feel your system's doing? Uh, they're they're the, some of the most likely in the country to say our system's not working uh, the way we think it should. And they actually don't mind, you know, support and leadership from the federal government to help um, improve the system. I think, I think at the end of the day, people don't, um, they're not going to say, no, thanks, don't help us because it's not your jurisdiction. In the end of the day, I think people just want problems solved. Um, and, and for whatever reason, no one's been willing to take, and I use again, quotations around risk. So I don't know if there's actually a risk here in, in, in putting a, a bold plan forward. Um, but, but everything you've said about how this pandemic has impacted the system and, and really the state of the, the health system before the pandemic what was not something to write home about. Um, just to take you off a side, I've been, um, there's this documentary about uh, UK politics, the, the Blair and Brown governments um, in, in the late 90s and, and 2000s. And they invested heavily in those years in the NHS, the National Health Service, uh, Britain's public health care system. So your point about we can, we, can, we can make the system much better while still holding um, you know, those values that Canadians, you're right, sort of cherish about our system um, and still have that conversation. It's been done elsewhere. Um, and so there's no excuse. And I think sometimes it's just these jurisdictional fights that get in the way of actual solutions. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. And, and I think it's, you know, sometimes that fear of change and being bold 
that keeps people where they are. But I, I think what's quite clear is we right now have a system that is at best mediocre. Um, yet the people within the system are passionate. They care about what they do. They want to deliver excellence for their patients. But that expertise and passion is not being harnessed towards a systems level change that allows them to execute on that. And that's, I think, where we where we need the help in the systems redesign. I think we also, you know, so so the election's done. New Parliament's going to likely, you know, uh, emerge um, at the end of the month. A new cabinet's coming, and all the talk I think will be in the short term about getting us through these final, hopefully, months of the pandemic, and then the big work of of recovery. And you know, recovery post pandemic recovery means uh, different things to different people, and everyone has a, an opinion on what it should look like. But um, what I haven't heard much about. Um, apart from, you know, the CMA and other health uh, organizations is that that recovery, first and foremost, needs to be about recovering our, our health system and making sure that Canadians have access to the care that, that they will need on an ongoing basis. What are you hoping to see, you know, in, in, in the throne speech in the government's, the new government's agenda, as it relates to, you know, the pandemic recovery and, and the health system overall? We'd really like to see the federal government commit to increasing the federal health transfer with a clear ladder to allow that funding to increase over time to match the needs of the provinces, particularly in light of an aging population. We know that we need that baseline funding to start to go back to where it used to be and to continue to increase over time. So that's really critical. And I hope that we hear that in the throne speech. The other piece that's really clearly an issue is the human health resource aspect of our system. Um, you know, a bed is not helpful to a patient if there's no one to staff that bed and care for that patient. And it takes a team to do that. So on the hospital level, uh, we really need to understand what is our need for physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, other people that work in these systems. And how do we make sure we have enough staff? How do we project ahead for our training systems to make sure we're training enough people? And how do we deploy them across the country to make sure Canadians living in rural and remote parts of the country also have access to healthcare. So that human health resource planning. And then on the community side, we know that we have a crisis of primary care. So over 5 million Canadians that don't have a family doctor or a primary care provider, how do we solve that? You know, and because our system is kind of a gate kept system in that accessing all the other aspects of care, I said, other than emergency medicine, really require that family physician to be the gatekeeper and to make those connections and to follow that patient through their trajectory of care. Patients that don't have access to that are really disadvantaged when it comes to accessing the rest of the system. And there's also really clear data that shows, you know, your survival is much more poor when you do not have a longitudinal primary care provider or a family doctor. So we really need to refocus on why primary care is not working the way it's meant to work in this country, given that our system relies on that model. And we need to understand that and invest in it. So I think we really have the two issues. One is the budget overall needs to reflect the needs of the country. But secondly, we really need to better understand human health resource planning, actually have a plan for the country, and then implement with the resources that are required to train adequate people and get them where they need to be. It's just shocking to me, you know, to hear some of the stats about, you know, nurses as an example, the shortage that that exists and and how the pandemic's only going to make that and has made that far worse because you're going to have a, a workforce that, as you said, is exhausted and 
and and that backlog still needs to be dealt with. And so even if we, get, we you know solve for this crisis, um, there's another crisis waiting uh, to come through. Um, you know, are there are there other specific things? Um, and and maybe you can bring in long term care here because there's been obviously lots of talk about the weakness and the the, the crisis in that system throughout this pandemic. It, I guess what is the what is the big challenge? Like there's lots of there's lots of sectors across Canada that are having a hard time finding people um, to work in it, and it's a it's not a solution. It's not a problem you can solve overnight because you need to get people interested in a career path that that gets them the training they need. Are there are there both short and longer term solutions that you see as 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 um, effective that the, the federal government can can play a role in? For sure. You know, certainly when you speak of long-term care, one of the big challenges there is the lack of a national long-term care strategy. And, you know, that's what we believe why we saw long-term care homes so decimated early in the pandemic is there's so many varying levels of care in our different care homes across the country because there are no federal standards. You know, and we saw that the outcomes in for-profit facilities were much worse than the outcomes in not-for-profit facilities, but just in general, those environments were really hard hit. So I think there's huge space there for actual strategies, national strategies and standards for long-term care to improve what our elders have access to. Also, the idea of bringing long-term care under the umbrella of healthcare, under universal healthcare, so that those services are actually guaranteed and in place where people's important. And I think that is another really important issue when we talk about our quote unquote universal healthcare system. You know, I, I think it would be better termed a universal sickness system. We have a, a system that responds well to very sick people that need hospital style care. We do not have a system that embraces all the other aspects of health that people need to be healthy, right? We don't have national pharmacare in this country. That's something that's been talked about for a long, long time. There's a clear plan on how to execute on that. It hasn't happened. This is a huge barrier for folks. Many people cannot afford their medications. So that's a big problem. Long-term care, not within the bundle of healthcare. We've seen what happens with that during this pandemic. It's been absolutely devastating. You know, we're hearing from aging Canadians that being able to age with dignity and have home care and aging at home resources in place so that they have choice and autonomy is critical, but we're, we just don't see the resources allocated there. And then there's all the other aspects of what people need to be healthy, you know, mental health services and supports almost exclusively exist outside of universal healthcare. So that's, again, a huge barrier. Um, things like rehab, physio, nutrition, these things are not often available to people that don't have private insurance. So again, what you start to see is as a baseline, what we know is the social determinants of health are the biggest factor in whether you are a healthy person or not. And then as you go along your life trajectory, all these other policy things are in place that further that divide because the people who have, have private insurance, have the money to access these other services that they need to maintain their health. And the folks that were marginalized from the beginning don't have access to those things. And that starts to split yet again. So I think the other real issue is we need more robust social policies to address some of these underlying determinants of health and why some people are healthy and why other people aren't. Um, so that we can really start to close the gap for Canadians, a gap that unfortunately just seems to be widening. Yeah, and and I, I just note that your your personal practice is is built around right that that concept and value of of social medicine, which I assume is 
similar to, you know, identifying those social determinants of, of health and, and helping deal with those as well. Can you maybe shifting gear slightly to your own personal um, work, but can you share a bit of detail on, on the philosophy behind your approach to, to, to medicine and, and the work that you're doing in the Yukon? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Cause that's definitely a, a huge passion of mine. You know, what brought me to the Yukon was really that desire to be able to provide care to children and families through that lens, what we call social pediatrics. And really what we mean by that is, is that recognition that the health of children doesn't just have to do with the child in isolation. It has to do with how that child's situated within their family, within their community, within their culture. Um, and by addressing all of those factors around the child with the child at the center, we can really start to make significant shifts in that child's health and wellness. So when, when we try to deliver medicine from that lens, what we really are trying to do is partner with, with people to really look more holistically at what's happening with a person. And obviously in my case with a, with a child. Um, so what that looks like in, in delivery is it means partnering with community groups to say, Hey, how can we better serve your population? One example we've done here in the Yukon is we have a, a strong partnership with the Council of Yukon First Nations, where we work together to deliver care to some of their citizens in non-traditional ways, such as hosting clinics at their cultural center, together with child health fairs, where elders come and bring traditional medicines, different groups in the community that provide services for children are present so families can meet. You know, families can come with whoever they want. We meet in large rooms. They're often their support team from the CYFN is there as well. And we can much more holistically look at the child and really sort of take the stress level of the appointment down to making it a bit more casual and informal so that there's not that barrier about having to seek care in an office or a more formalized setting. So it's it, some of that is just being creative about how you shift what you do to make it more accessible to people. The other thing is, you know, again, we were talking about that, that issue of accessing care. So pediatricians generally practice as specialists in some parts of the country, they work more as primary care providers. But what that means is you need a referral to see a pediatrician, mm -hmm. which again is a barrier for a lot of families that have traditionally been marginalized. So one of the other things we were able to do here was to work with the government to open up our service to allow more than just other physicians to refer to us so we can be referred to by community workers, mm -hmm. teachers, mental health clinicians. Um, so this all has really brought the barrier to accessing our services much lower. And then we work in this wraparound way where we partner and team up often have large meetings. You know, sometimes there'll be 20 people there talking about a child and family to really try to holistically look at the strengths of the family and the child and the challenges and come up with a plan that addresses all of them. So that to me is really what social medicine is. It's, it's stepping back. It's stepping out of silos. It's, it's recognizing the value of culture and community and, and trying to see a child holistically, both strengths and challenges and coming up with comprehensive plans that address all aspects of their life. Interesting. No, I could see how that ultimately leads to better outcomes because you're, you're, it's not just about sort of medicine, right? It's about the, the environment that child's living in and, and all the influences on, on his or her health. I want to, I want to guess that the final sort of question is, is around children more broadly uh, as a pediatrician, as now the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Um, I think you have a really uh, interesting perspective to bring to what I think is another very challenging situation for, you know, Canada's children. Uh, these 18 months, we've all gone through a, a really difficult time, but 
I've done, I've worked with a number of organizations who continually, you know, put a spotlight on just how, on how difficult it's been to be a kid uh, living uh, during this pandemic. I'm, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on, again, what, what policy can do from a federal level, uh, specifically to um, how, how we can help kids recover from this and make sure that they're not, you know, falling behind and or falling through the cracks or that the impact of these 18 months isn't felt for the rest of their lives as, as, as bad as it could happen, I guess, is, is where I'm going with that. I think the first thing Canadians need to realize is much like our healthcare system, our systems for children are also very mediocre. You know, the recent UNICEF report showed that Canada ranks 30th out of 38 high income countries for outcomes in children, which is really, I think, quite shocking. And I don't think your average Canadian might really think that Canada is such a challenging place for children to be growing up. And I think that's really concerning when you look at the resources that we have in this country to be doing that poorly for our future generations really concerns me, you know, and, and what we know is there's many threats to childhood uh, that keep rearing their head, poor mental health, again, made worse by the pandemic, ongoing systemic racism and discrimination. That's not necessarily addressed through through policy issues with child abuse, poverty, again, disproportionately impacting Indigenous families and racialized families. We still have issues of food and nutritional insecurity in this country. We have some children who don't have access to safe water. Our infant mortality rate is higher than it should be given the status of our country. And we're seeing, you know, ongoing issues with children being able to access physical activity and play. And with that, we're seeing an increase in obesity as a problem facing our kids. So there's a lot of things that are happening for children. And what we're not seeing is a lot of child-centric policy. So, you know, children and youth often aren't involved in decision-making, which is concerning because we know Mm -hmm. plans are better when their voices are heard and there's ways they could be involved. We don't have a national commissioner for children in this country. So there's no one whose job it is to really constantly be shining a light on the status of kids and making sure that the resources are there. We don't see the dollars going into children, early childhood education, supports for young families, uh, more extended maternity leaves, these policy things that we know make a difference for kids long term. So there's there's many areas of public policy, I think, that could be improved and strengthened and ran through a lens of what's best for children. And we could see much better outcomes. But because we're not taking that action, we're sort of stuck and other countries are moving ahead while we're falling behind. And it, it, it's so, I mean, you can look at it from the impact on the individual child and their family. But I think to your last point there, it, 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 it ultimately will affect our competitiveness, our productivity, the kind of society that we, 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 we live in. And I'm, I'm hopeful, at least, that because the conversation around childcare seems to be advancing and, and, you know, the government uh, was reelected, which I think would mean we're going to finally see a national childcare system be, be, be fully implemented. Um, I think is at least a step in the right direction, but you're right. There's, there's far more. And I love the idea of a, of a child or children's commissioner because nothing's as powerful here in Ottawa as somebody putting a spotlight on it and, and holding government and policymakers accountable, especially one that's, has the resources and the power to, to do that. So it, it's such a, a great idea. So last question, I didn't, I didn't 
throw this one on, on the list of questions I was going to say, but it's, I think it's a, a fairly easy one for you. Um, more than a year, so let's say a year from now, your, your term as a CMA president is, is over and you look back at your 12 months um, in this position, you'll feel good about your, 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 your term. Um, why? Like what, what does success you hope will look like when you're, when you're done? I think for me, success would be really getting our voices at the table where decisions are made. You know, there's clear evidence that shows when physicians are involved with administrators in terms of policy making, the decisions are better, the policies are better, and the system works better. You know, so we've invited various levels of government to meet with us. I would love that opportunity to speak with them and really have them see us as an ongoing partner that can really help with these this planning and these decisions and these policy making, uh, because I think we have a lot of insight and we can provide a lot of support in that area. So I think if that was strengthened, I would see that as a success. And the other piece I think is really important is is that my colleagues see me as adequately representing their views and concerns. You know, we have eighty thousand physicians in this country. Um, our job at the CMA is to try to bring that national lens and national voice to their concerns. And I think if, if my colleagues look to me and say, Hey, Catherine, we really felt like you were speaking for us and we see our issues now being taken seriously. And we feel like governments are paying more attention to our system and starting the long process. Cause it's not going to be an easy one uh, of really committing to some change. Uh, then I would feel like that was a pretty good 12 months. Well, given the uh, task that you have for the remaining nine months of your, your term and, and all of the issues that, that you're going to be asked to engage in, um, I wish you the best of luck and I hope you're successful because uh, I think we're all relying on, on, on the CMA and other organizations like you to, to make sure that system that we, we so depend on is, is there and strong um, after this, this crisis. So. Dr. Smart, thank you so much for joining the, the conversation today, and it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me, David.